Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. In 2017, the U.S. announced its intent to return to the moon for the first time in a half century. NASA and its international partners in the Artemis program hope to land a crewed lunar mission in 2024, but some experts have cast their doubts. So how did America achieve such a feat back in the 1960s, and why haven't we been back since? My guest today, Charles Fishman, answers those questions and more. Charles is a journalist and author of One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon, as well as The Big Thirst, The Secret Life and Turbulent Future of Water. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You write in One Giant Leap, and I'm going to quote you here, Apollo was an unqualified success, and it wasn't judged on its performance a waste of money, nor was it a use of money that the United States couldn't afford. An unqualified success. Is that a contrarian judgment among people who are disappointed that Apollo did not lead to further exploration, did not lead to moon colonies and humans on Mars? Or is that not a contrarian uh, conclusion? It's a contrarian conclusion that I am trying to shift into the mainstream and, and here, here's why. Very briefly, of course, we can say it was an unqualified success in that President John Kennedy charged America and NASA with landing people on the moon by the end of the decade, returning them safely to home, and we did it. We did it. Yes, on May 25th, 1961, as, as I discovered in incredible sort of bemusing detail, when Kennedy said, let's go to the moon, it was literally impossible. They didn't have the rocket, the spaceship, the space food, the computer. They didn't have a trajectory. They could not have plotted a course to the moon. We didn't know how to get there in a million different ways. It was impossible when he said, let's do it. And literally a hundred months later, it was done. That's, that's stunning in and of itself. An, an incredible engineering achievement, an incredible scientific achievement, an incredible manufacturing achievement. Often the incredible high-tech developments that the engineers and scientists came up with, there was no way to manufacture them. And so the computers, the interior of the computers were woven by hand by former textile workers hired from textile plants in, in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, the spacesuits were sewn by hand on black Singer sewing machines. So the the technology was advanced so far that we didn't actually have the ability to make it. That was a stunning achievement. But the real achievement was that NASA and Apollo really ushered in the digital age that we all live in. It was a stunning success in that it unleashed the world that we've become accustomed to and rely on every minute of every day. You can trace the quality and innovation and speed and robustness of your iPhone or your laptop computer in terms of heritage directly back to the computers that flew to the moon. NASA was the first organization of any kind 
to use integrated circuits, to use computer chips. NASA drove the price down 98%. And then having done that, it drove the price down 78% again. NASA bought almost all the computer chips in the world three or four years in a row for Apollo. And most important, those computer chips were so important to going to the moon that NASA had this really elaborate acceptance procedure. When a batch of a thousand chips came in, there were 12 tests that every chip went through. Vibration, heat, cold. Uh, they immersed them in liquid nitrogen to make sure they were adequately sealed. If one of the thousand chips failed one of the 12 tests, they stopped the tests and sent the whole batch back to Fairchild or Texas Instruments. And they said, these chips are no good, send us good chips. And until that moment, computer chips weren't particularly reliable. And the, the computer companies at that time said, we had to set, set up separate manufacturing lines for NASA. NASA taught us to make chips that when you, when you press two plus two, you always get four. And when you ask for your phone app, you get the phone app and not the weather app. And so NASA literally created the market and the understanding of computer chips in going to the moon. And then we stepped up and, and adopted those computer chips for every, you know, for every function on earth. I think that story is really underappreciated, but space enthusiasts don't see that as enough. We stopped the Apollo program and no one has gone beyond near earth orbit since. They view that as a failure of the past 50 years. Is that fair? Right. So, so right. In 1972, the, the last time we went to the moon, we flew 240,000 miles to the moon. And literally since 1972, uh, which is 49 years now, no, no human being has been further than about 240 miles <laughs> from Earth. That's where the space station orbits and where the, the Chinese now orbit. So if, if success means um, that, that Apollo opened the solar system to exploration and settlement by human beings, if that's what you mean by success, then, then there is no question that Apollo didn't accomplish that. I guess two, two points. First, I, I want to just underscore that People, you know, that you know the joke as well as I do. What did we get from going to the moon? We got Tang and Velcro, like just pure silliness. No, we got the digital revolution that transformed the world. We just have been looking in the wrong place. And that's, that's when you look at the evidence, that's unequivocal. We did not get Star Trek. We did not get the Jetsons. We did not get lost in space. We don't all fly around with our robots and go where we want to go. I think we're about to get it. You, you yourself are very interested in this and, and have explored it. And I think, I think the key is economics. We, we went to space funded and motivated by a kind of national and global imperative. You can't understand going to the moon in the 1960s without understanding the geopolitics. We would not have gone to the moon without the Cold War. We were racing the Russians and for for five years, the Russians were uh, beating the crap out of us. They did everything first. They appeared to have mastery of space in a way that we didn't. They launched a person into orbit on their first effort to launch a person into space. And literally three weeks later, we launched a person in a pop fly. We couldn't even match them 
coming later. We often did less well two or three or four months after they had done something. And so the problem with geopolitics as a motivator is in 1972, uh, when, when Richard Nixon looked out across the world, when the leaders of the Soviet Union looked out across the world, space wasn't an important arena anymore. And, and it's, it, it is expensive to go to space and, and, and you need a clear mission and you need a clear goal. And so there's no question that if, if, if you're a space person and you think Apollo failed because it didn't pull us along, I guess what I would say is the economics weren't there for companies and non-governmental organizations of all kinds to jump into space at that moment. And, and I make the case, and, and this is my sense of it, I've been a space reporter since 1986. Um, I don't think the leadership of NASA was clear on where we should go next and how we should get there. And that muddle led to literally 30 or 40 years of, of compromises and poor missions, over-promising and under-delivering. You know, I love the space shuttle. I love the space station. You know, I don't think they have been good custodians of our space money, to be honest. The, the robotic exploration missions have been brilliant and pioneering compared to what we've gotten from the, from the human spaceflight program. But that's not necessarily the fault of the frontline people at NASA. That's a leadership failure. Well, I mean, one bit of evidence uh, that NASA and its leaders did not do a great job explaining what was the point of sending people into space uh, after they landed on the moon is that now that we seem to be sort of in this new era of, of space exploration and thinking about a space economy and we, you know, we have the, the billionaire space race, is that the criticisms of the 1960s space race are just being sort of repeated today. These are sort of 50 year old critiques that how can we go to space when we have inequality on earth, that this is, this is just about some vague sense of national uh, prestige. Why are we really doing it? Those, those are the exact same crit, uh, criticisms we, we, we hear today. They have not, apparently a lot of people feel like NASA never answered them. And it sounds like they really did it. <laughs> it was it was astonishing to read newspaper stories and journal articles from 1964. And it was like, wait a minute, <laughs> that these criticisms were were there then. I don't know if you saw the First Man, you know the yes, uh, I did. Uh, the the movie, the Neil Armstrong, and one of the, and they played the the song Whitey on the Moon in yeah. that movie. Again, very again, very relevant today in the kind of criticisms I hear in inequality and in disparities in this country. Before it was how can the government do it? Now it's how can these billionaires be spending their money uh, going into space? You know, why aren't they, you know, being taxed right. more? Well, well let's money okay. So 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 let's very briefly, the the United States is a big country. Um we're capable of doing even three or four things at once, not just very one wealthy. Or two. We're very, and we're very wealthy. And, and, in, and in the 60s, um, going to the moon cost about $20 billion. There are three individual years of the Vietnam War, each of which cost more than the entire race to the moon. So we could clearly afford to go to the moon. That's not a question. Whether it was the right use of money, 
uh, is a separate question than whether we could afford it. So in the 60s, we tackled poverty, women's rights, civil rights, voting rights in dramatic ways. The, the uh, economic inequality, gender inequality, all fell dramatically. Uh, uh, the number of, of um, Black Americans who voted for um, Lyndon Johnson compared to voting in the election of Kennedy and Nixon, I believe it was two times the number because of the passage of civil rights and voting rights. So we actually made progress on all those things. We didn't fix them and, and those problems still dog us. What's happening now is completely different. I, I really dislike, I think it is completely misleading to call what Elon Musk at SpaceX and, and, um, and Jeff Bezos at Blue Origin and to some degree, Richard, Richard Branson at Virgin Galactic, a, a billionaire space race. Musk and um, uh, Bezos are, are in business to change the business of space, to create a space economy just the way that Bezos created Amazon. Their goal is very simple. They wanna take something that has historically cost $100 million and bring the cost down to a million dollars. What used to cost $100 million to launch to space will now cost a million dollars. And when you do that, as you know, you completely change what's possible. $100 million is the kind of decision that even big companies would hesitate, like, do we need to do this? Is it the only way to do this? What if, what if it blows up? There are individual news organizations to this day, the networks, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, that can spend a million dollars a year to keep a correspondent in a dangerous place. A million dollars to go to space completely changes the landscape. Those people aren't they may be in an ego race. They may, you know, they, they, they may think of each other as rivals in that way. But this isn't philanthropy and it isn't indulgence. Bezos expects Blue Origin to become a going business. I've, I've been to Blue Origin and I've, I've interviewed him a bunch of times on this topic. He expects there to be a Thursday afternoon launch to orbit on a Blue Origin rocket before too long. If you miss this Thursday, they're going to launch again next Thursday just like the Southwest Airlines three o'clock flight from, from Dallas to LaGuardia. Elon Musk is, is five years ahead of Jeff Bezos. Elon Musk and SpaceX and that crew are doing something as a company that only three nations in the world have done. Send human beings successfully to space, flawlessly fly rockets to orbit, to the space station and back. So I, I think, and I sometimes sound a little too enthusiastic. I think that we are creating, we are absolutely creating a space economy. We're creating a new kind of economic platform. And we don't know, just like in 1998, it wasn't clear what the internet was gonna unleash, but, but it, it has literally reached into, you know, everything from real estate to, you know, we, we, we now see these rocket launches from the perspective of the rocket as they're going up, right? Everything is touched by it. I think, I think 10 years from now, there will be dozens of people living and working in space and they will be, they will be creating economic value. Some, they will be paying their own bills. And I think 20 and 30 years from now, it's gonna, it, it will, this moment that we're living in now will look like the beginning of this remarkable transformation in which space becomes 
a much more tangible economy. I had MIT astronomer Sarah Seeger on the podcast earlier this year, and I expected her to say that as a scientist, she would prefer NASA take the lead, but she was thrilled at the advances being made by the private sector. So even people who are doing pure research are glad Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos had decided to invest in space. A absolutely, and, and I, think, I think NASA is doing the wrong thing right now. In the, the, the paperback of the book has a new chapter, and I make this argument in that, in that new concluding chapter. This is the most exciting moment in space, but, but Musk and Bezos are showing that the private sector can handle the operational aspects. You know, it's not simple or easy or low risk to fly a United 757 from JFK to Heathrow. It's demanding and complicated and dangerous, but the government creates a structure to support that, and then the private companies do it every day. And it's very clear that the operational aspects of space can be done by the private sector, and we're just at the beginning of that. I think NASA should be doing today exactly what it was doing in the 1960s. Here's three or five or seven hard problems. We need, we need spaceships that have artificial gravity. <laughs> Every spaceship in a TV show has artificial gravity or a movie, right? Uh, but we could have spaceships with artificial gravity. It's just an engineering problem, just in quotes. That's what I want NASA to be paying attention to. Something no one talks about. If you're going to Mars, those people who go to Mars are gonna be 100% autonomous. The quickest radio exchange between here and Mars is nine minutes in each direction. There's no mission control for a mission to Mars. The mission control is in the spaceship, is those six or eight or 10 people solving their own problems and occasionally consulting uh, uh, mission control for some guidance. But we've never had an autonomous space mission. I did a story on uh, the life on the International Space Station when, when, it, when it had only been up there 18 years. So I was curious what it was like to live and work in space. When those astronauts wake up every morning, there's a spreadsheet on their laptop from Houston telling them what they're gonna spend the day doing in six minute increments. Well, teaching astronauts to be autonomous, to make their own decisions, take their own risks, have all their own information, 3D printers for spare parts, all that stuff, and teaching NASA to let go, those are hard problems. I want NASA working on those kind of breakthrough problems. We need to figure out how to pick crews that are gonna get along. For that same story on life in the International Space Station, the astronauts keep diaries, some of them that are mailed to an industrial psychologist confidentially. The number one complaint the astronauts have about life on the space station is too much meddling from Houston. They don't know what our life is like. The number two complaint, is about their fellow crew members. So there's a lot that NASA could be doing, and I, I don't need NASA to be developing the SLS launch system and the Orion capsule. It's pretty clear. We have big problems, and I'd like them to tackle those. Do you see that changing all over the next five to 10 years? It would, it, would, it, would take, it would take somebody bold, but I think, you know, a, a new leader for NASA. And I think the science, I mean, we're about to launch the James Webb telescope, finally. I think that's going to be great. You know, the, 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 the scientist you were talking about, um, the, the woman, Sarah, right now, 
there's a company, which I'm sure you've heard of, called Planet Labs, um, that photographs the entire surface of the planet every day. Every backyard, every shopping center, every desert, every coastline, <laughs> the central courtyard of the Vatican, Dhaka, Bangladesh, every part of the, the world is photographed every day to one square meter resolution using their satellites. And that I think that company has only had 500 or 600 million dollars in total funding. And they are using um, just what you said, these incredible technological developments, and they're making money. They sell their understanding of the planet to people. And so I think the companies are, I hope will show NASA how unnecessary it is for NASA to do the op, like, you know, we don't, we don't have government run airlines, right? Um, and so I, I hope that the dawn of this era of, we call it private, but corporate, the corporate space economy will prod NASA to say, you know what, we need bigger reach. Now, I think going back to the moon and thinking about going to Mars is helping NASA do that. Um, but NASA needs a shakeup. You know, there was a report a month ago about NASA's effort to, um, to design and sew, design and fabricate new spacesuits. <laughs> they have spent $420 million in the last nine years and they don't have any spacesuits. They don't have a design. They don't have a contractor, and they're expected to spend another six hundred plus million to get one test spacesuit and two operations. They will have spent a billion dollars to get two spacesuits. That that's that's not even nineteen sixties Apollo era. That's sort of <laughs> that sort of space shuttle style thinking. Elon Musk, when that report came out, simply tweeted at NASA. Would you like help with this problem? <laughs> <laughs> that, that the example you just gave—that is the kind of thing which will result in another fifty years of some of these dreams not coming true, of not having colonies on Mars, colonies uh, on, on the Moon. One, how do we avoid that? And and do you think that we will? And that you know, we that over the coming decades we will be on the Moon and we will be on Mars and have a substantive presence in those places. So let's make a distinction. I think the space economy that I imagine that is literally driven by economics, people can do things in space, get information, make products that can't be made on earth and send them down. I think that will become a going enterprise in the next 10 to 20 years. It won't need government support beyond the kind of government support that the railroads need or the airlines need or the highways need. There'll be a structure in which that's done, but private companies will be doing that. That may not seem that glamorous. If we're making super fast optical fiber in orbit and jetting it or parachuting it back to earth, I don't know, how sexy is that? If it increases internet speeds a hundred times, it'll be nice. If it's all done robotically, you know, it, it may be a burst of attention and then just do do what it does. I don't think there's any economic reason to go to the moon or go to Mars. Whatever resources those places have, those resources are only good for going further out in space. It will always be easier to get, you know, all kinds of valuable minerals right here on Earth than to go harness a, a an asteroid and tow it this way and mine it and send the stuff down. 
the question of whether we're going to establish permanent bases on the moon with an eye to going to Mars, to me, that's a question of exactly the kind of leadership and, and sort of clarity of vision and mission that we haven't had you know, between 1972 and whatever, 2010. Lots of presidents have announced lots of programs that didn't happen. We're going to go to the moon. Here's why. We're going to go to Mars. Here's why. Here's what we're going to get from that. And what I would say is, I hope we do it. No one said in 1961, if we go to the moon, we will create a kind of computer technology and an attitude toward computer technology that you cannot imagine, but that will come along five or 10 years quicker than it otherwise would have. The economic benefit of that was huge. It was completely unexpected. I think if we go to Mars, <laughs> we will learn things and we will develop tools that will be incredibly valuable back on Earth. I don't think there's gonna be an economic thrilling reason to go to Mars that will make that self-sustaining. But I think that kind of aspirational mission is, is great for human beings. It's part of being alive. And we as a society can afford it. You know, we spend, we spend more on the Pentagon budget every year, $750 billion than we have spent total in space since the last moon landing, if you add it up. So one year's Pentagon spending can buy you 20 or 30 years of dramatic space exploration. So again, we can afford it. And you know what? We have big problems, climate change, economic inequality, a sense of fading opportunity in some parts of the United States, you know, in some parts of the sense of being American. I think these big missions remind us what we can do. And I think when you look back at, at, at what it took to go to the moon, if we wanna tackle those big problems, we can tackle them. And so I hope, I truly hope that we will have a permanent presence on the moon, that we will use that to teach ourselves to go to Mars, just because I think the benefits of that will be surprising and well worth the, the relatively modest cost compared to other things we spend money on. My guest today has been Charles Fishman, author of One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. Charles, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah.